I next met with Dr. Sarah Hurwitz, and to continue the theme of new agents in breast cancer, she presented cases from her practice of women with metastatic disease who received one or more newly approved agents, beginning with a woman who presented five years ago with metastatic ER-positive HER2-negative disease. She initially received treatment on a clinical trial with the aromatase inhibitor letrozole combined with a novel targeted agent still in development. However, she then was noted to have increasing size of her metastases, requiring another form of systemic therapy. Dr. Hurwitz describes the patient. Very thin, energetic woman, 57 years old. And so what I explained to her is, you know, this is incurable disease, but it's highly treatable disease with a multitude of options because the hormone receptors are both expressed very strongly. It indicates that this disease is likely very amenable to hormonal therapy. And she was really worried. She said, I want you to give me big time chemo. Let's kill this thing, you know, and give me what my friend had when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She had three chemo drugs and lost all her hair. I'm ready to fight. And it was hard to sort of wrap her brain around the thought that the most toxic therapy may not be the most effective therapy, that where this tumor is weak is in its needs for hormones to drive its growth. And while it won't work as quickly sometimes as chemo, it may be more durable and more effective. A lot of patients have that misconception, I think, but given that this lady had metastatic ER-positive disease that's now showing resistance to the aromatase inhibitor letrozole, I see that she then went on to receive a relatively recently approved agent, the mTOR inhibitor Everlimus, along with another AI, exemestane, still no chemo. Can you talk about the research that now has this option open for patients in this situation? Yeah, absolutely. This is some of the most interesting and important data that's come up in the last several decades relating to hormone receptor positive breast cancer. What is known based on laboratory research is that ER positive breast cancers, if you deprive them a long time of estrogen, that there are other pathways that can be activated within the cell that allow the estrogen receptor to be stimulated and cause the cell to divide and grow outside of estrogen. And one of those important pathways is the PI3 kinase AKT mTOR pathway. mTOR is sort of the bottom one that gets stimulated and then sets about a chain reaction that leads to cell growth, cell metabolism, development of new blood vessels around the cell, etc. So Everolimus inhibits mTOR. It's a pill that patients take and it gets inside the cell and it blocks the action of mTOR so that that backup pathway cannot be put into play. It has been studied primarily in patients who have already received an aromatase inhibitor like anastrozole or letrozole and then progressed on that or have shown resistance to that. And the reason that they have looked at using the mTOR inhibitor in this patient population is primarily because you want to select patients with tumors that already have that pathway activated, that have already demonstrated resistance to having estrogen deprivation. So the Bolero 2 study was conducted. It was a phase 3 study 
where half of the women received exemestane, which is another type of aromatase inhibitor. It's a little bit different chemically. It's steroidal, either alone or with placebo, or in combination with everolimus. And they followed the patients out. They now have 18-month follow-up data. And what was shown was that the patients who received everolimus in combination with exemestane had a longer progression-free survival of about five months without their disease getting worse. The overall survival data is not yet mature. It is expected or hoped that it will be mature at the end of 2013 or perhaps mid-2014. But the progression-free survival data was sufficiently impressive to lead to the FDA approval of this drug for patients who are postmenopausal with hormone receptor positive breast cancer that has progressed after an aromatase inhibitor. And can you talk a little bit about using this agent and particularly using it in combination with an aromatase inhibitor? It is an oral agent, but there are toxicities and side effects associated with it. Can you talk about what's been seen? Yeah, it's a very important point. We get really excited when we give patients pills because we feel like we're not giving them chemotherapy. And we have to treat this drug more like chemotherapy. When I have a patient come to me to receive their first dose of chemotherapy, I have them actually meet with me or my nurse practitioner for 45 minutes to review toxicity and side effects prior to giving them the drug so that they're prepared and know what to expect and know when to call me, what is an emergency, etc. We give them information sheets. In the beginning, when I started using Everolimus, I didn't take this approach, and I found a lot of patients had a lot of trouble in the first two weeks on this drug because it causes very painful mouth sores. It also is associated with a risk of pneumonitis or an inflammatory reaction in the lungs that can become quite serious, even life-threatening in rare cases. And so I now have adopted my chemo teaching approach with Everolimus. And when I first start a patient on Everolimus, I have them come in and talk to them about the stomatitis or mouth sores, risk of pneumonitis, risk of infection, etc., to give them sort of a overview so that they know what to expect. I think this improves compliance with oral medications and also helps avoid serious situations. I'm curious how you respond if the patient says, what's the chance I'm going to just cruise through this like it's a placebo? What's the chance I'm going to have some problems, but we'll be able to you know, deal with it in terms of modifying the dose or whatever? And what's the chance I'm going to have enough problems that I'll probably have to stop taking it? I tell patients that they have a very high chance they're going to have some side effect over 80 to 90%. I can't actually think of a patient in my own practice who has felt like it was like a placebo. Eventually, everyone has some sort of reaction. It's mild in many cases. Maybe 10% of my patients we need to take off of the drug, but probably 30 to 40% of my patients we have to dose reduce due to the stomatitis, in some cases mild pneumonitis that occurs, and in occasional cases rash occurs. So dose reduction is rather common with this drug. An interesting analysis was done in the Bolero 2 data, I believe by Hope Rugo, looking at patients who've had dose reduction to look at whether or not they're still benefiting from the Everolimus. And it does appear that even with dose reduction, the patients are having an improved progression-free survival compared to patients who did not take 
Everolimus. So that's a bit of information I share with my patients to encourage them to be honest with me about side effects and to encourage them that if we have to dose reduce, their likelihood of having a beneficial outcome is not lessened. Maybe you can talk a little bit more because you were involved in a lot of the research and the development of this drug about the type of mucositis that occurs clinically, what you see, how it compares to mucositis that you see with chemotherapy, and whether you do anything to prevent it and how you manage it other than reducing the dose or holding the drug. So it's termed stomatitis more so than mucositis. Mucositis is more of this general mouth soreness, redness of the mucosal membranes within the mouth, sometimes down the throat and esophagus. The stomatitis that occurs with Everolimus, they're discrete lesions that sort of look like canker sores that occur on the inner lips and sometimes gums. They're well circumscribed. They're incredibly painful. An indication that you need to stop the drug and allow it to heal is if the patient's having drooling, difficulty tolerating food. Definitely, if they're not tolerating liquid, you have to stop the medication. And so those are sort of the parameters that we use. In terms of prevention, there's not a lot of data, but data is forthcoming. I believe there is a clinical trial evaluating whether a steroid mouthwash, if used early on, can prevent it. There are some people who believe that this is highly effective and so start with the steroid mouthwash. Others use the steroid mouthwash when stomatitis occurs more as a treatment. There are also some mucoprotective agents that are used for head and neck cancer patients that are being evaluated in small clinical trials to see whether or not utilizing that will help. I have patients who swear by putting the pill in a dollop of whipped cream or Cool Whip or a marshmallow helps them. It's unclear if direct contact with the mucous membrane is actually to blame for the stomatitis. So it's all sort of in development, but I think that the sponsor who makes the drug is very cognizant that this is a quality of life altering side effect that really needs to be evaluated and improved in order for patients to stay on the drug. So what's the typical kind of situation that you might want to think about adding Everolimus into endocrine therapy, specifically exemestane? And what about a patient like this? Of course, this happened before the drug was approved. Right. So I would not utilize Everolimus in this particular patient situation because she has never received any therapy in terms of aromatase inhibitors for her disease. I pretty much stick to the way the trial was designed, the Bolero 2 study was designed, because that's where it's been validated to help patients. We do not have adequate data to date that this drug is beneficial in the frontline setting. Again, the rationale for targeting patients whose disease has progressed on an aromatase inhibitor is a sound rationale because you're selecting those tumors that probably have this pathway, this PI3 kinase AKT mTOR pathway activated. So for this particular patient, I'm not using it, and I wouldn't use it for any patient who had not progressed on or had a quick recurrence after an aromatase inhibitor. 
I'm currently also not using it in premenopausal women because it hasn't been adequately tested there. There was a phase two randomized study called TAMRAD where tamoxifen was used as the endocrine backbone in patients who had progressed on an aromatase inhibitor, and that study did show improved time to progression and overall survival in patients who received everolimus, but it was phase two data and it was postmenopausal women. So at this point, in a woman who has active ovaries, I'm not utilizing the drug outside of a clinical trial. So before we find out what happened to this patient, just to finish up in terms of everolimus, where are things heading in terms of new research? I know there's a trial looking at it in the adjuvant setting. Can you talk about that and other research concepts? So there are studies, large studies, evaluating everolimus in the early disease setting. One study is looking at patients whose disease has not relapsed, I think, within three years after all their adjuvant therapy, and they're randomly assigned to everolimus or no everolimus. And I think high-risk disease that's ER positive is being targeted there. And another one looking at everolimus versus no everolimus in the adjuvant setting, again, high-risk disease. So those studies are going to be important for us to look at in terms of understanding how to utilize this drug. As I said before, this drug is not without toxicity and giving a woman who may be cured of her disease a drug that is guaranteed to have some sort of side effect for a period of time like a year, it's not like using trastuzumab where the patients come in for a half hour and they feel well. And so really I think the data would need to be compelling to lead to an FDA approval for this drug and I think it would have to be particularly high risk disease. Now, in this setting of ER-positive, HER2-negative metastatic disease, although endocrine therapy is usually the first option as it in this lady, we know that in general we're not dealing with a curative situation and that chemotherapy is in their future. Anything new in terms of chemotherapy for HER2-negative metastatic disease? There has been one new drug that's come out, which is aribulin, and I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. And the whole question of sequencing of chemotherapy in these patients. Yeah, so, you know, again, just to underscore, if this woman had a very high proliferation index, very high-grade tumor, I'd be more apt to try chemotherapy up front. And in that situation, would usually start with a taxane single agent. If she had visceral crisis, meaning really impending liver failure or heart failure from this, I might consider pairing it, taxane, gemcitabine, taxane, cyclophosphamide type of pairing, because those have a high chance of inducing an objective response, but usually start with taxane-based therapy in those situations, and then once a good response is achieved, segue to endocrine therapy as a maintenance strategy. In general, when I have to transition after endocrine therapy onto chemotherapy, I usually, in the ER-positive HER2-negative setting with the low proliferation index, 
I usually transition to capecitabine. And that's sort of a first line, you know, chemo that I will transition to. I don't believe it's indicated that way or approved that way. I think it's approved after uh, taxane and anthracycline. But the nice thing about capecitabine is that it is oral. You can dose it to reduce side effects. People don't have to come into the infusion room. They don't have to lose their hair. So it's a nice first line agent. Taxanes, again, have a lot of activity. Anthracyclines are certainly active as well. CMF is something that I've sort of revived and used more in triple negative disease because anecdotally I've seen some good responses. And aribulin, I have had some real successes with where patients who really were not doing well were able to turn around and have a bit of disease control toward the end of therapy, but I tend to use it sort of like it was used in the EMBRACE study where patients had already received several treatment options. Can you talk a little bit about how aribulin works, what it is, and what the toxicity is? So it, like many of the drugs that we have available, the taxanes and vinca alkaloids and apophalones, it targets the microtubules. The microtubules are very important for structuring the cell. They're very important for cell division, and they're dynamic proteins that if you freeze them or if you don't allow them to assemble, cell division cannot occur. Aribulin is given weekly with, I believe it's two weeks on, one week off. The main side effects that I see patients experience is neutropenia. So you do have to watch the white count carefully, and I will use GCSF to help patients get through the cycle. Neuropathy is another side effect that's common, and most of my patients do lose their hair, although I've seen patients grow their hair back sort of after three or four cycles. Generally, it's very well tolerated. If you compare it to a drug like ixabepalone, was sort of the new drug about five years ago, that drug causes profound fatigue and patients just feel horrible. Aribulin allows patients in most cases to sort of live their life. So what's the current status of this lady? She is doing fine on that combination to date, though we have to deal with the mouth sores. Her golfing has taken a hit because of some fatigue that's increased with the everolimus, and we have dose reduced from the 10 milligrams down to 7.5 milligrams, which she's tolerating now with a good quality of life. And how long has she been on treatment, and have any of the lesions shrunk down, or are they just staying the same? She's been on for about six months now, and the rib lesions haven't gone away, but have reduced in their FDG uptake on the PET imaging. They appear to be healing. And when did she get the mucositis, and you know, how did it present, and what did you do about it? She got the mucositis about a week into starting the everolimus, which is fairly typical. I think the median time for development of the mouse sores is about 14, 15 days with patients, so it's fast. But she had been forewarned and used a soft toothbrush. She avoided very hot liquids. She avoided spicy foods. She avoided alcohol-based mouthwash. She followed all of our directions. Ultimately, we had to break for a, a few days in order to give her mouth a rest and then start at a lower dose because in spite of all of those prophylactic measures, they got a little bit worse. So now she's doing fine on the lower dose. Let's talk about HER2 positive metastatic disease. Certainly a lot's been happening the last couple of years. You've been right in the middle of it. 
Maybe you can present your 30-year-old lady. Yeah, so I had a 30-year-old woman who actually was transferred to me from another physician a little bit later, but her story started when she was in her third trimester of pregnancy with her little boy, and she felt a funky lump in her left breast, but she assumed it was, you know, a clogged milk duct. She nursed him for six months, and the area continued to grow. She was treated for mastitis with some antibiotics, and it kept growing. And ultimately, she had a workup imaging that showed a large four or five centimeter mass in the left breast with associated erythema, very large lymph nodes in the axilla, some hilar lymph nodes, as well as a solitary liver metastasis. She also had a pelvic bone metastasis. So kind of like your other patient, she's on the unusual situation of presenting with metastatic disease. Exactly, which is funny. I don't know why I see more of these patients, maybe because I'm at an academic center. If you look at the national statistics, only about 10% of women in the U.S. present with stage 4 disease, and it's higher in other countries. But yes, so her situation was similar to our first patient. So how long ago was this that she presented? This is about... I'd say about a year ago now, yeah. What did her biopsy show? She was biopsied, and it was ER positive, sort of atypically for her two positive breast cancer. It's rather unusual. It was strongly positive, ER 80%. PR was about 50%, 2 plus, And HER2 was both amplified and overexpressed. So a truly triple positive tumor. And was she having any symptoms from the metastatic disease? Other than the breast pain and redness, she didn't have any bone pain or axillary pain or arm swelling, so she was a very high-functioning young mother. Again, like my first patient, very, very determined to receive state-of-the-art aggressive therapy. She needed to see a response and have the best chance for a long-term survival. So there are a number of potential options that one might consider in a so-called triple positive metastatic situation. Maybe you can review these and sort of how each one appealed to you and her. Absolutely. So, you know, first you can think about the two large studies that were done to evaluate the ER positive, HER2 positive first line setting. One of them was TANDEM, which was a phase three study evaluating anastrozole versus trastuzumab plus anastrozole, so hitting both of them or just hitting the hormone receptor. What it lacked was a third arm of trastuzumab alone, and so we have to kind of look at other trials to see what that third arm might have yielded. But the study showed that the response rates and the progression-free survival were improved with trastuzumab plus anastrozole. So doing both was better than just using the anti-estrogen therapy. And the second study was the EGF-3008 study, I believe, looking at lapatinib letrozole versus letrozole alone. So lapatinib is an oral drug that targets the inside of the HER2 receptor, and it also targets HER1, or epidermal growth factor receptor, EGFR. And so it has some side effects due to that targeting of EGFR, including rash and diarrhea that need to be watched. And in that study, similar to the TANDEM study, the AI with the HER2-targeted drug, lapatinib, improved outcomes for patients in terms of progression-free survival compared to lapatinib alone. The questions begged, how much is the AI really helping these patients? Is it all trastuzumab benefiting them? 
But if you're really looking at getting a response, my feeling is that you should pair the HER2 targeted agent with chemotherapy. And this woman wanted a response. It was really important to her psychologically. So I didn't choose this as a first line option, but rather thought maybe what I could do is induce a response with chemotherapy and then use maintenance aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen with this therapy. This woman is obviously premenopausal, so an AI wouldn't be appropriate as maintenance therapy. So in terms of first line therapy, which this lady would fall into for metastatic HER2 positive disease, we now have a new agent that's been approved in the last year, pertuzumab. Can you explain what it is, what we know about it, and was that something you thought about? I'm not sure the timing of this case in her. Yes. Yes to all. So pertuzumab is actually an antibody that was studied in the laboratory. It was one of the agents being initially developed against HER2-positive disease back in the 90s alongside trastuzumab. And I believe, based on what my mentor, Dr. Slamans, told me, that trastuzumab was better in the laboratory and was brought forward clinically earlier. Pertuzumab targets the outside of the HER2 receptor at a different epitope or a different site on the receptor from that that is targeted by trastuzumab. So they can both fit on the outside of the HER2 receptor, sort of hitting different areas of that HER2 receptor. And there have been studies in the laboratory that have shown that if you use both of these drugs that target the HER2 receptor, that you do more. It's synergistic than using one or the other. So synergism is sort of like one plus one equals three. They make one another work better. And so that was seen in the laboratory and phase one and two studies were done that looked at the combination of these two drugs and they did appear to have good activity. The single agent activity of pertuzumab hasn't been all that impressive in the very refractory setting, but the dual blockade using both of them has been impressive. So there was a phase three study called Cleopatra, which enrolled women just like my patient who had HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer that had never received trastuzumab in the metastatic setting. 90% of these patients had never received trastuzumab in any setting, in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting. Only 10% of patients had received trastuzumab in the early breast cancer setting. So most of the patients were enrolled in the study outside of the United States. And so when we look at the results, we have to keep that in mind that this is a very treatment-naive patient population. And this study gave half the patients pertuzumab plus trastuzumab plus a chemotherapy docetaxel, which is a taxane and the other half, docetaxel trastuzumab, standard of care. And what was shown was those patients who received pertuzumab-based therapy had a progression-free survival of 18 months compared to only 12 months in the patients who received trastuzumab docetaxel alone. The overall survival was also improved with pertuzumab, and this led to the FDA approval of this drug about a year ago, which coincides with the timing of when I saw my patient, and I recommended that she receive this as a first-line therapy, these three drugs. And what is known in terms of the side effects? Usually monoclonal antibodies don't cause a whole lot of problems, but what's been seen with pertuzumab? 
It doesn't really worsen things to a great extent for patients. There is slightly more febrile neutropenia seen in patients receiving pertuzumab, and there is a higher incidence of rash because what pertuzumab does is it blocks the dimerization or mating of HER2 with HER3, and this can lead to some rash as a side effect. Importantly, the use of pertuzumab in combination with trastuzumab does not increase the risk of heart failure or cardiomyopathy, and that, of course, was a concern going forward with these trials and thankfully was not seen. I'm hoping you're going to tell me this lady had a great response and uh, is now on tamoxifen, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab. <laughs> yes. Did you treat her? <laughs> so she she did. After three cycles, she had a near complete response. The liver lesion disappeared. The breast had returned to normal clinically, which was just so exciting for her. Lymph nodes were no longer palpable or seen on imaging. And after six cycles, everything had normalized and the bone metastases, which had been lytic, did appear to be healing. They looked more blastic on the scans. So I had to convince her to stop the docetaxel and go on to tamoxifen. And because of her insurance, she has a HMO. She was being treated by a different physician and was just coming to me for recommendations along the way. And her other physician said, you need to stop the pertuzumab. We don't have long-term safety data. The Cleopatra study only gave the chemo and trastuzumab and pertuzumab for six cycles. And so she called me frantic that, you know, continuing the pertuzumab would be harmful to her. And so I had a talk with the oncologist and explained, look, the Cleopatra study was done exactly like this. Women were given six cycles of chemo. If they had a good response, they could come off of the chemo and continue trastuzumab, pertuzumab. So the Cleopatra study did have them continue both of the HER2-targeted agents until the time of progression. So the data reflects that. And to drop off the pertuzumab after six cycles would not be following the Cleopatra study, and I feel would be putting her in harm's way in terms of giving her less of a chance of long-term progression-free survival. So she continued the pertuzumab, and you're right, I added in tamoxifen. So it's really fascinating, and hopefully this response will continue for a long time. But unfortunately, in the majority of cases, at some point, you do see progressive disease. And that kind of leads to the other thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of what's new in HER2-positive metastatic disease. And that's a really fascinating agent that you've been very much involved in the research with, TDM1, trastuzumab emtansine. Yes, so trastuzumab emtansine is trastuzumab, the HER2-targeted monoclonal antibody, stably linked to one of the most potent chemotherapies we have, which is a derivative of metansine. That's what the DM stands for. Metansine was discovered and developed out of that NCI program they had in the 60s and 70s where scientists went out into the rainforest and looked for compounds from nature that might be anti-cancer. So this was one of those drugs. It was tested in the 70s and 80s, early 80s, in phase one and I believe a phase two study. And while it was very, very potent and very good at killing cancer cells, it was too toxic to give to patients. So they shelved it and didn't do anything with it. 
come, I don't know, early 2000, not so long ago, a company figured out how to stably link it, this metanzine, to the HER2 antibody trastuzumab so that only when trastuzumab linked to the chemo was bound to the HER2, at that point the HER2 and the antibody drug conjugate were taken up into the cancer cell and an enzyme in the cancer cell clipped that linker and releases the chemotherapy. So only when the chemo is within the HER2 overexpressing cancer cell is it activated. So it's truly targeted delivery of chemotherapy to the HER2 overexpressing cell. I've heard the term Trojan horse. Yes, <laughs> I think that's a good example or metaphor. So what do we know about this agent clinically, both in terms of activity and anti-tumor effect, as well as side effects? So in the laboratory, the most predictive marker for response to TDM1 is overexpression of HER2. So really, you need the tumor cell to have HER2 for it to work. In phase one and then several phase two single arm studies, it was studied in very heavily pretreated HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer patients and shown to have activity on the order of 25% of patients having objective responses. And these patients had all had prior trastuzumab and many lines of chemotherapy. So promising and the notable thing was, other than lowering the platelet count a bit and causing some elevation in liver enzymes, really well tolerated. Patients weren't losing their hair with this drug. They weren't vomiting. They weren't having diarrhea. They felt well on the drug. So it was taken into phase two and three testing. There was a phase two randomized study called TDM4450 in patients with HER2 positive, previously untreated metastatic breast cancer, so first line. And it was about 137 patient study. Half the patients received docetaxel trastuzumab, standard first-line therapy at that time, versus TDM1. And the patients who received TDM1 had a five-month improvement in time to progression that was significant. And they had about half of the chance of having a grade 3, 4, moderate to severe adverse event. So about 89% of patients in the control arm had grade 3, 4 adverse events and about 46% in the TDM1 arm. And like I said, patients didn't lose their hair or feel sick, and they have a lowering in their platelet count and transaminitis that's manageable with holding a dose or reducing a dose. So that study was a study you did. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious whether when you first sat down to sort of draw it up, you were thinking it might be better. It seemed to me like if it had been equal it would have been a winner because it was less toxic, no hair loss, et cetera. But I'm not sure I would have guessed it was going to be better. Yeah, indeed. I don't think anyone guessed it would be better. We all hoped, but I don't think that anyone leading this study, either on the sponsor's side or on the investigator side, felt that it was going to be better. The first presentation of the data by Edith Perez at ESMO, I think in 2010, they just looked at objective response rate, and it was the same in the two treatment arms. There was no difference. And so that sort of supported everyone's notion that, well, it's going to be a win because it's more tolerable, but it's not going to be better. How can you have a longer progression-free survival if patients aren't having their tumors shrink more in one arm than in the other. And in breast cancer, you don't need to have an objective response rate. You just need to have 
stable disease, disease that's not out of control. And the patients indeed lived longer without their tumors progressing in the TDM1 arm. So it was exciting. So what else do we know? There was another big trial that was presented that was larger than this one, the so-called AMELIA study. What did that look at? Yeah, so the AMELIA study was done in patients who'd already received trastuzumab, second and third line setting. So again, TDM1, but it was now being compared to lapatinib, capecitabine, lapatinib, the oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor of HER1 and HER2, capecitabine, the oral chemotherapy, so an all-oral regimen. This was not a blinded study. TDM1 is given intravenously in the lapatinib, capecitabine's oral. Patients were treated until the time of progression, and they looked at progression-free survival and overall survival, and there are over 970 patients enrolled in this study. And the results were that TDM1 was superior to lapatinib capecitabine, both in terms of progression-free survival, about a three-month improvement, in, as well as overall survival, I think five- or six-month improvement in overall survival. And that led to the FDA approval of this drug in February of 2013. I'm curious what your observation has been of these patients clinically Are you able to detect their own treatment at all? And what's the longest you've had someone on TDM1? I have a patient who was on the TDM4450 study. She's the longest patient I've had on it. She actually was randomized to the control arm, and at the time of progression, they allowed her to cross over and start TDM1. And she has been on it for several years now, over two years. And interestingly, she's had perfect control of her disease systemically. Occasionally, her platelets will drop into the 90 range. She feels good. She's actually scuba diving, skydiving, running. She's got two kids. She just got remarried. She's enjoying her life with a full head of curly blonde hair. The issue that's come up is she's had little solitary brain mets pop up along the way. And we've been allowed to do stereotactic radiation as they pop up and continue her on the TDM1 in this study. And she's doing fine. She's not having any side effects, but it's clear the drug does not appear to cross the blood-brain barrier. It's a bulky molecule. And so this is where her disease is sort of escaping. You mentioned that you can see alterations in hepatic function tests with this drug. What do you do when you see that? It depends on the severity. If it's very mild, you don't need to dose-reduce. But if it's becoming more moderate or severe, you have to hold the drug. And so you do have to keep an eye on the liver tests, AST, ALT, ALKFOS, bilirubins, with each dose of the drug. The drug is given every three weeks, and I make the nurses look at the results of the liver tests prior to dosing. It's the one serious side effect that can lead in very rare cases to liver failure. I think it's case reportable. It's not clear if it was due to the drug or due to underlying liver metastases, but it's important to keep your eye on the transaminases. If they return to normal or grade one, then you can resume, but the package insert explains how to dose reduce. What do you do with the patient who starts out with liver function abnormalities, for example, from the metastatic disease? That's the art of medicine because, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You're really between a rock and a hard place. And 
I was sort of trained that if the enzymes are elevated due to the liver metastases, you really need to treat. But you do have to have a very long conversation with the patient about the fact that you may worsen liver function and cause severe side effects by giving a drug that can have liver toxicity. I have given it. I usually start at the lower dose and see how patients do and monitor with weekly liver tests. But it's an area that hasn't been explored adequately because all of the patients enrolled on these studies had to have good liver function in order to go on the study. So often in oncology, our decisions are constrained by how drugs are approved and whether we can get it paid for. And right now, the approval for TDM1 is in patients who've had prior treatment with trastuzumab. But looking at data like the one from your trial that was a phase two study showing superiority and looking at the issue in terms of side effects, you would think a lot of people might want to think about it in the first line setting theoretically. What are your thoughts about that? I agree. It is a very attractive drug. In metastatic disease, we have to keep in mind, for the most part, it's a chronic illness that's incurable. And so while we really want to give patients the longest survival and disease control, we want to balance that with quality of life and allowing them to live their life, live their life as a mother, in their job, and as a wife. And so you really have to keep an eye on it, and that does make TDM1 such an attractive agent. The issue is, as you mentioned, there's no phase three data in the first line setting, and it's not approved that way, and these drugs are expensive. There is an ongoing phase three study called Marianne. It's a three-arm study in the first line setting. The control arm is docetaxel or taxane plus trastuzumab. TDM1 is the other arm, and the other arm is TDM1 plus pertuzumab. So that study closed to enrollment about a year ago, and I think the results, I mean, they're eagerly awaited results, but I think they're going to be out in the next year. And this is going to address where we should be, you know, using all of our, our great agents, pertuzumab and TDM1 together in the frontline setting, and then that begs the question, then what do we do in the second-line setting? Because we have no data beyond progression on those two agents. Or whether or not TDM1 as a single agent is an appropriate first drug to use. The question it doesn't answer is whether or not TDM1 or TDM1 pertuzumab is as good as or better than the new standard of care, which is docetaxel, trastuzumab, pertuzumab, because the control arm does not have pertuzumab in it.